Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Tonight we are talking about politics, right? Now maybe you don't really care about politics, right? Maybe you think, you know, it's your grandparents or your aunt or your uncle or your parents or your classmate who has the problem with politics, right? Maybe, you know, you're like, I don't really care. This is someone else's issue. Uh, I, I want to tell you that I don't think that's the case because uh, either way, whether you care about politics personally or you don't, you live in a world that is ravaged by political divide. And as a kingdom of priests, it really matters then how we navigate the sphere of life, right? You live in a world that as you progress in life is going to try to push you into one political camp or another, not just to like be one political camp or another, but to be your the defining identity marker of your entire life, right? As you progress in life, that is going to continue to happen. And so we need to, um, it is imperative, I think, I think it's imperative uh, for us to talk about how politics affects the commission life that we've signed up for as Christians, right? How are we supposed to navigate uh, this divisive landscape as a kingdom of priests, right? What posture are we supposed to embody? I am about to take my shoes off. Um, and what temptations do we face, right? Um, around this time, four years ago, there was a certain election going on between uh, one Donald Trey J. Trump and Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, that really kind of shaped the world. Um, and, and as that happened uh, throughout the whole week, right, everyone thought Hillary was going to win, um, and then Trump ended up winning. Um, and, and so I saw, you know, you got to see kind of the whole kind of gambit of reactions to what, uh, to, to politics from everyone, right? Everyone thought that at one point they were going to win, and everyone thought at one point that they were going to lose or that they did lose, right? Um, and so a common phrase that I saw from every single side as they thought that they, when they kind of either they thought they were going to lose or when they came to terms with losing, was this phrase. It was, but Jesus is still king, right? And it began to permeate my Facebook feed. I'm not cool. I don't have, I, back, I still don't have Twitter. Back then I didn't have Instagram. I only had Facebook. So my Facebook feed was permeated with this phrase, but Jesus is still king. And, and at first, I, you know, I kind of took some solace in that phrase, uh, but I became increasingly uncomfortable with how it was being used. Um, and so as the angsty uh, college student that I was, uh, Mary Beth can attest to this. Um, I wrote a Facebook uh, post in response to this, and that's how I want to start off tonight, um, because I think this Facebook post is at least going to help us begin to kind of define the problem of politics in our age and define politics wars in a way, um, you know, to kind of at least frame this, this conversation that we're going to have a little bit later, right? So here's the Facebook post that I came up with. But Jesus is still king. Over the past week, this phrase, uh, or one similar to it, have followed Hillary Rodham Clinton may become president, or Trump is president-elect, or both candidates are awful, but Jesus is still king. This week has certainly given us the full gamut. But as this election has reached its climax in this phrase, but Jesus is still king, has increasingly permeated my Facebook feed, I've become uncomfortable with finding solace in this sentiment, or using it to rationalize away the craziness of this election. This post is an effort to publicly think out loud through this uncomfortable feeling. Jesus is king is not just a phrase that we as Christians find solace in when things are looking bleak or are not turning out like we thought. Jesus is king is not something we pull out of our back pocket when we don't like the other options before us. Jesus is king is not only for times like this past week, 
Jesus is king is not a cookie cutter response or some sort of tagline. Jesus is king rather is our all-encompassing joyful proclamation, and hear this, at all times. I had forgotten that. Through Jesus' kingship, yes, we as Christians find rest in troubled times, but we also believe that, the one, that one day there will be nothing to be troubled about, that all will be set right. Through Jesus' kingship, we believe that acceptance and community are given. Through Jesus' kingship, we believe that identity and purpose are found. Through Jesus' kingship, we believe that forgiveness and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit reign. And I guess I say all this to say that I should have never had to reach back into my back pocket to pull out this phrase. It should have never been there in the first place. It shouldn't have been, it should have been at the tip of my tongue and at the forefront of my life. In other words, Jesus is King is not just some phrase that I should have taken uh, solace in as this crazy election was coming to its climax. Rather, Jesus is King should have been my joyful proclamation throughout this entire political process before and during and after. Now, this realization that Jesus is King has been uh, hiding in my back pocket has forced me to reflect. And as I reflected, I realized that I had been ungrounded during the season, tossed back and forth by the waves of this world. I realized that our government has become a, a, an idol in my life, that I invested more into the stability of a 250-year-old democracy than I had the internal reign of King Jesus. Because of this, a, a few questions linger with me, right? What, first, what if King Jesus, or Jesus is King had been my joyful proclamation all along? How would my life look different? Two, what if a candidate that I really liked won? Would I still be saying Jesus is still king with as much eagerness as I'm saying it now? And three, as a subject of King Jesus, do I really look that different than the world? Because as Christians, we are supposed to be salt and light in a world of unsaltiness and darkness, a world without flavor, and a world that is very dim. Number three is the one that probably bothers me the most. Yes, I believe that the Christian response, right, that Jesus is still king, is the only response that is substantial enough to hold up over time, right? It's the only thing that is really worth saying. But everyone else has a response to the election too. Everyone has some sort of coping mechanism. Everyone has some phrase or some sentiment that they can take comfort in or that they can use to rationalize away why something happened, what happened, and why it happened. Turning to a different phrase doesn't differentiate us from the world. Turning to a different phrase doesn't make us different than the world. But if we as Christians did not have to turn at all we would have looked very different from a world whose heads four years ago were going like this. If the kingship of Jesus so saturated my heart and my mind that Jesus as king was not something that I pulled out of my back pocket for the moment, but was something that I had been joyfully proclaiming the whole time, that is something that would have been uniquely Christian. I don't know how you handle politics. Now, I don't know if it's an idol in your life or not. I don't know uh, whether you're conservative or liberal. I hope that there's both in this room. I do. I think a church is a place where that can happen. And so I don't know what your temptations are, but we have to learn how to navigate this. 
We live in a world that is increasingly being divided. And so we must learn how to not allow the phrase Jesus is King to make its way into our back pocket during election season and only pull it out when we lose. No matter whether it's your political party that you support or not is in power, the phrase Jesus is King is still true. question um, that we have to ask as we uh, approach politics as Christians is this, uh, to whom or to what are we witnessing, right? As I talk to others, to whom or what am I witnessing? As I engage on social media, to whom or what am I witnessing? As I uh, post, repost, share, or laugh at that political meme, which is witty but does lack the nuance of reality, to whom or what am I witnessing? Is Jesus' kingship something that we're just pulling out of our back pocket when the political party we vote for loses? Is it, or is it our consistent witness before and during and after election season, right? Um, we're looking at the com commissioning text of, 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 of the Bible this semester, and, and we're jumping all the way to the New Testament, which I'm really excited about. And we'll be in the New Testament the rest of the semester, which, by the way, there's not much left. But, um, which, yeah, congratulations to you all. Um, so, um, but we're, we're, we're going to look at Acts uh, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go and turn there. Um, but, but, but I'll have it up on the screen. Um, but this is the most, uh, by far the most political of the commissioning text, right? Um, and, and we're going to unpack that, but let me just go ahead and read it. Um, but this is all about Jesus being king. So um, after his suffering, uh, Jesus, or he, presented himself to them, his disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, right? So this is the resurrected Lord Jesus. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, my, my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they uh, gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you're here, um, if you're at OCOC on Sunday morning, you get that reference. If not, don't worry about it. It's not a huge deal. But so kingdom language being used, very political language. He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father sent by his own authority, but you will receive the power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be, here. this, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. After this, he said, uh, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud uh, hid him from their sight, right? So he ascends into heaven and sits on his throne, right? And, and Hebrews tells us that. He ascends into heaven, and he sits on his throne. All right, so what's happening here, right? Now, whenever um, uh, Tiberius Caesar, uh, who was the Caesar, uh, you know, what, what is Caesar? What does Caesar mean? Actually, if we talk about what it means, it would be really interesting. Anyone knows what, it, what, what, anyone knows what it means? What does it actually mean? You should know, yeah, you know this. You should. Why is it called a cesarean section? Uh, and is how he was cut, he was killed. He was stabbed to death, right? Do we know this? How did Julius Caesar die? 
stabbed over and over and over again, right? So it's actually about cutting someone up. Uh, that's why it's called a cesarean section. Come on, you're a man, you, I'm, you, labor delivery nurse over here, you should know this. Um, sorry, Mary Beth doesn't like to be put on the spot, so uh, I shouldn't have done that, I apologize. Um, all right, so Caesar, right? But, but yes, it does, it does refer to them as a king, right? So um, now, um, Tiberius Caesar was the king uh, of Rome, or the Caesar over Rome and, and, and all of the Roman provinces. Uh, when Jesus was doing his ministry, basically the second half of Jesus' life, uh, 17 AD on, okay? So um, during this time, Tiberius Caesar was, uh, was king, right? Or, or Caesar over all of Rome and uh, the Roman Empire. Um, now, when he took over from Augustus Caesar, who you may be more familiar with, uh, and he was Caesar when Jesus was born, um, how did people know? Like, how did people know that the transfer of power happened between um, Tiberius, uh, over to Tiberius, when Augustus died? Now, and when Augustus uh, took over power from Julius Caesar, how did people know, right? Now, you should know Julius Caesar. If you've been in the history class, you know who Julius Caesar is. Um, so but how, how, how did people know that? And, and when uh, Julius Caesar consolidated power and began the Roman Empire as we know it, how did people know? How did people know, right? It, it didn't happen um, on TV, right? They didn't have TVs. They didn't know that. They didn't look on their news apps, right? Uh, they didn't have the internet, and they didn't even have really a, a strong postal system. So how did they know who was Caesar? How did they know who was in charge? How did they know who was Lord? Coins and statues. Coins and statues. Each reign, whether it be Julius or Augustus or Tiberius, um, began with this campaign, right, of, of coins being printed and statues being made, right? So let's say you're, I mean, like Rome spread over, I mean, think about this, right? Like how did, like Rome is all the way over here and like they have a province over in Spain, right? So how did these people in Spain know who was their ruler? Well, Caesar would gather, one of these Caesars would gather someone, uh, a group of people, they'd send them out after having these, these printed and these built and they would travel all across the Roman empire and they would use these to tell people that Caesar was Lord. They would witness to the fact that now Tiberius Caesar was Caesar. He was Lord, he was king. And by the way, that was a common phrase, Caesar is Lord. In Acts 1, what we see is that the risen Lord Jesus is ascending to his throne in heaven, but instead of using statues and coins, what does Jesus have? He has his disciples. And he encourages them to be his witnesses into Judea, in Samaria, into the ends of the earth. And by the way, uh, where does the, anyone know, where does Paul end up in Acts? He's preaching where? Rome. He's reached the ends of the, to the, he's reached the ends of the earth as they know it. He's gone to the heart of the Roman Empire. And over 90 times in the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as Lord. And a lot of those times, it's Jesus is Lord which is a direct rebuke, right? It's a political statement, because if Jesus is Lord, then who is it? Say loud. Caesar. Caesar is it, right? If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is it. Now let's keep fleshing this out. As uh, Caroline read for us in Mark 12, uh, when the Pharisees uh, brought Jesus a coin with Caesar's imprint on it, right? One of these coins that we were just looking at. So it was, it was one of these probably, that's a denarius. So they bring in this coin. And now, um, just a little background for what's happening here. So um, there's kind of like the Jewish people had different ways of interacting with Rome, right? So you had different political camps, per se, um, or really postures towards the politics of the day. 
Um, one would be the Essenes, right? So uh, John the Baptist would have been considered an Essene. He went off into the wilderness, he disengaged from the world, and he just didn't get involved with Rome at all, right? So that's the Essenes. So they're basically just as apolitical as it gets. They don't get involved, right? On the other hand, you have um, the Sadducees. And they were basically in the pockets of the Romans, right? The way you think about tax collectors, um, or the way the Jews would have thought about tax collectors, they probably kind of thought about the Sadducees that way. The, the Sadducees kind of used Rome to kind of get as much power inside of the Jewish community as possible. And the Pharisees were kind of right here in the middle, right? They, they had some power, and so they kind of like wanted just to keep the status quo, but they really didn't like Rome because they like were holier than thou, and so they really didn't like Rome, but they were kind of like straddling this fence. They were kind of the middle players. And so they were kind of the ones positioned to try to trick Jesus, right? Because if Jesus, Jesus was in a sense like a revolutionary, right? And, and they thought, right, what was the hope of all of his followers, right? If Jesus was Messiah, what was he going to do? He was going to overthrow Rome, and he was going to restore Israel as a kingdom, right? And that's what was happening in Acts 1, right? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, right? And that's what they're thinking. They probably didn't talk that way. It's more than that, but, you know. Um, so, um, uh, sorry, I, I lost a train of thought, and I shouldn't have tried to make a funny joke. It wasn't funny, right? Um, so, like, there's these different postures, but, but the Pharisees are in position in order to kind of trick Jesus, right? Because Jesus can't say, like, oh, Caesar's fine. Because his followers, in their mind, because his followers wouldn't like that. But on the other hand, um, you know, he can't really put himself, um, you know, he's not, the Sadducees want to kill him. They're not going to like him. But he also can't upset them because that means they'll kill him quicker than, you know, he really wanted to be killed, right? So that's what they thought they were doing. They were going to try to trick him up. But this is what Jesus says, right? He looks at the coin. He says, whose face is on? They say Caesar's. And he says, well, get back to Caesar's. What is Caesar's? And get to God, what is God's? In other words, stop caring so much about your posture towards Rome. Stop caring so much about who's in power. The way of the kingdom of God flips everything on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Be a citizen. To us, I think he's saying, get informed. Care on some level. Sure, go vote. Do it. But never, and I mean never, give your allegiance, put your trust in, put your faith in, expect your sustenance and your salvation to come from anything but me. I think that's what Jesus is telling us when he says this. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar. So give to Washington, D.C. what is Washington, D.C.'s. But give to God what is God's. Washington does not deserve your allegiance. Washington does not deserve your faithfulness. Washington does not deserve for you to put your hope in them for your salvation and your sustenance. But only the kingdom of God does. Tim Keller uh, frames the problem this way. It is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. Now, Ernest Beaker wrote that in a society that has lost the reality of God, and by the way, he's not just speaking about the, the, the world becoming atheist right now. Now, there is a, a sort of secularization of our world, but that has affected both people who are outside the church, but it has also affected those of us who are inside of the church. We are very secular Christians, right? Have you been a part of the Oxford Church Christ on Sunday mornings? I've preached on this idea uh, against this idea of deism, right? That God is just kind of up in the clouds and he's kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, he's the man upstairs, but he's nothing more, nothing less. He's not really engaged in this world, right? Secularization doesn't just affect campus, right? It affects us here. 
It has creeped its way into our churches, right? We are very secular Christians, and that's not a good thing. All right? So this is for everyone, right? So society that has lost the reality of God, um, many people will look to romantic love to give them fulfillment they once found a religious experience. Nietzsche, uh, a German philosopher in the 19th century, uh, however, believed that it would be money that would replace God. But there's another candidate to fill this spiritual vacuum. We can also look to politics. We can look to our political leaders as messiahs. We can uh, look at our political policies as saving doctrine and turn to our political activism into some sort of religion. Now, if you've watched the news in any of the past couple, just let's just say in 2020, man, that is true, isn't it? Man, that is true. That is as true as it gets. And no party is really unscathed from that. So I want you to think about this, right? If we think that someone who does not affiliate themselves with the same party as us cannot be a faithful Christian, or if we don't possess the uh, civility to both openly and critically listen to an opposing view and have our view um, critiqued and, and, and openly and critically critiqued, if we uh, reflexively are holding party line on no matter what is said or done, um, if we vehemently support a candidate without nuance, right, without being able to recognize imperfections, and faults along with good qualities. By the way, on this one, it really matters, right? Because if we are able to recognize the imperfections of our political candidates, then we're just claiming that they're God, right? If we can't recognize imperfections, we're claiming that they're perfect. You can't do that, all right? Um, if we, uh, if we uh, get more wrapped up in or stirred up by news coverage, uh, then we are engaged with the actual, like tangible, physical people who are hurt and lost and lonely and marginalized in this world. Um, if we think, I mean, hear this, if we think that it's possible for utopia to happen in this world if our political side just got their way, and if we think that God um, trembles or his hands are tied when politicians from the other side uh, impose anti-Christian policies when Psalm 2 says that the Lord scoffs at the nations as they try to conspire against him. And if we look uh, to politics to heal our deepest wounds and give our life meaning, man, then we are rendered unto, unto Caesar what is actually God's. If any of those things are happening in our lives, and if you see that happening in the world, what's happening is a rebuke of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, uh, verse 17. We have given to Caesar what is actually God's. So I think our question becomes, why does this happen? Right? Why are we so often witness to our political party over and against Jesus as Lord? Right? As we seek to witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord during these divided times, why do we so often render unto Caesar what is ultimately and rightfully God's? That is our allegiance and our hope and our trust for our salvation, our sustenance, and our faith, right? Now, this is oversimplified. Uh, oversimplified. This is extremely oversimplified. But I think the two main mistakes that Christians make uh, while engaging with politics are they either replace God with politics or we equate God with politics, right? So we either replace God with politics or equate God with politics. And respectively, uh, in so doing, we actually break the first and second commandments of the, of the Ten Commandments, right? Right? Uh, uh, Exodus 20, verses 2 through 4. Uh, this is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, uh, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me or before me. In other words, don't replace me with the false god, one who can't deliver you or provide for you or give you hope, right? Have no other gods beside me. Don't replace me with something. Command number two, you shall make for yourself 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. He's talking about himself, right? Don't try to make an image that represents me. Now, why? What God is saying is don't equate me, the creator, with something inside of my creation. Don't try to control me by making me into something that you can understand. I am bigger than that. That's what God is saying. And so let's start with that one. Let's start with the second commandment, breaking it, equating something with God, right? Uh, I think the temptation that, that right-wing or conservative or Republican politics is more prone to make, and this is yet again, I'm oversimplifying, is that we equate God with politics, right? That we equate God with politics. The best way I know how to describe this is that um, when people say the phrase, you know, they'll, they'll talk to you about their priorities, uh, what, it, what, what will they usually list off? If someone tells you the priorities, it's three things. God, family, country. What do they mean or aspire to when they say it? God equals family equals country. We say this, we probably mean this. God equals family equals country. In other words, what we, what we aspire to is that, you know, when we say this, it's, you know, God and family, country, but really what we desire out of all those three things, the reason we're coming up with those things and listing those things is because we really want all of those things to share the same ethics and values, because then we can actually just be this. And if this is the case, life is much easier, right? If this was the case, life is much easier because then you don't have divided allegiances. This is easier. But we've been called to live as what? Exiles, First Peter 1. Verse 1, the Christian life is not one that is easy. I think there's two, two, two dangers to, to, to making this mistake, in which we equate God and politics. First is the lack of distinction, and I think the second is, is, is heightened defensiveness. Now, the first uh, lack of distinction, um, let me put it this way, there is no such thing as plural priorities in the life of God. To rank God among others, even if we put him first, degrades him and dilutes our witness to Jesus as Lord. God is not a priority. God is not even our number one priority. God is the framework. God is the reality out of which we derive our priorities. God is distinct from our priorities. God is so much bigger than anything that we would call a priority that we, it's just, it degrades him to call him one. He's bigger than that. We can't, we can't list him among other things. It degrades God when we do this, I think. And by the way, I do this. I think I've degraded God by doing this. God is so much bigger than these other things that when we list him as just another item on the list, we are degrading him. Implicit in our witness that Jesus is Lord is a drastic distinction between God and politics. Implicit in our witness that Jesus is Lord is a drastic distinction between God and politics, right? God isn't ranked amongst our other priorities, right? Even if we're ranking number one, which is good, right? Like, I mean, I get, I get the idea of it. But we can't do that. God is way too big to be ranked among a list of other things. He is the defining reality of our lives. 
God isn't ranked, but one informs the other, right? God informs everything else. Um, Joshua, uh, if you were here last year, we, we looked at the book of Joshua, and there's a scene in Joshua chapter 5, and, and he kind of stumbles upon this random guy who's a soldier, and he says, are you for us or against us? And it ends up being the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, I'm the angel of the Lord. Neither. In other words, to say, it doesn't matter if I'm for you or against you. The question is, are you for or against God? Right? God is the reality out of which everything else is based, not just another list, another thing on our list of priorities, even if he's number one. The second is heightened, heightened defensiveness, right? I think this is the second kind of, kind of, kind of a pitfall of this, right? Um, we're constantly put in, in a defensive position because um, if we break the second commandment and, and live into this, that God equals family equals country, when my politics is attacked, God is attacked because God equals family equals country. And so we recoil and we defend. But hear this, God is too grand and God is too real. God is distinct. He is holy. He is other. He is complete and other goodness, right? He is way too real. He is way too grand to need us to defend him. One of my favorite quotes comes from a, a, a woman, a philosopher named uh, Marilyn Robinson. And she says that she says, there's nothing that, uh, there's, uh, oh man, goodness. there's nothing that can be said true of God out of a posture of defense. God doesn't need, I mean, here's, God doesn't need me and you. God existed before us, God will exist after we die, and it is God who will resurrect us so we can live again. He doesn't need me and you. He doesn't need us to defend him. God is too distinct, too other, too real, too grand to need his creatures defending him to other creatures. How have we let and allowed conflating our politics with religion to view our view of God so much that we feel like we need to defend him? Have we tamed God into something that must be defended? God is not a little kitty cat, right? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, on the other hand, I think the temptation that left-wing and more liberal and democratic politics is prone to fall into is this, and that is to replace God with politics, right? Replacing God on the throne of their lives with government, placing their hope and their trust for salvation and sustenance there and, their, and therefore their allegiance government rather than God. Um, I, there's a show um, called West Wing that I really like, um, and it follows a Democratic presidential administration, and um, I love the show, but it's really, really interesting the way they talk about politics, right? And they talk about it as a source of hope for the people, right? A place, I and mean, this is a quote from the show, a place where no one gets left behind. Uh, it's a beacon of light in a dark world. It's all very churchy and religious imagery, right? Because they've replaced God with politics. And if you listen, I, I listen to both right and left wing, uh, just kind of, kind of or leaning uh, news media. I, I find it interesting to listen to both sides and hear how they talk about things. And if you listen to left, I mean, it's, it's something you do. They, they tend to talk about politics as this place and this kind of source for hope and meaning. And almost, they never use the word salvation, but like salvation. In a secularizing, secularizing world, government has often supplanted God as the source for hope and salvation and sustenance a place in which people have turned to for purpose and meaning because they don't have God to do that for them. Um, this is uh, just going to be kind of a, a really blunt question, rhetorical, but like, what is it? And 
I mean this about Republican and Democratic administrations. What is it about the US government that has made us ever think that they could be a source of salvation or hope or a place where no one gets left behind? You watch the news. I mean, what, what is it about the American government that has ever made us think that they could replace God on the throne of our lives and provide for us hope and salvation and sustenance? I mean, it's, just, it's a crazy thing that we've done. But it happens, right, each day. Recently, I've talked a lot about the problem of defining and finding hope in human progress, right? I talked about it two weeks ago at Connect, and we talked about worship, and I talked about it this past Sunday morning at the Oxford Church of Christ. But I think this temptation, I mean, this, that idea, right, this, this, we put our hope in human progress, and therefore, well, kind of the, the epitome of that is politics. And so I think it really kind of sums it up for us, right? We have put our hope in the fact that, you know, man, just, you know, we're going to solve, like, strife between nations through sheer diplomacy. Without divine interaction in this world, we're just going to figure it out as humans because we're great and we can do this. We're going to end poverty and world hunger as humans without divine interaction because we can do this. That the trajectory of, of the human project is just one of being up and up. That is crazy. Politics is man-made. It is a creature. It's neither good nor bad, but it certainly isn't God who is creator. It cannot replace him and be a source of hope and salvation and deliverance and a thing that we should put our trust for our sustenance. Why would we ever put our hope in humanity? When God has offered us something more. Right? God gives us a hope that is outside of ourselves and outside of our experience. It is secure, but it is not safe because we therefore are no longer in charge. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. So let me close uh, tonight um, with a song. If you um, are more right-leaning in your politics and you have a temptation to equate God with politics, I encourage you to read the psalm this week. You see that God is so much bigger and better and grander and more real and tangible than any political government or, or, or party or, or movement can ever be. And therefore, you can't equate him to this, what's about to be said of him here. I encourage you to memorize this. If you are left-leaning in your politics and you have a temptation to replace God with politics, to, to, to place your allegiance in politics instead of Yahweh. Memorize this verse this week. And see that it is only him, it is only Yahweh, of which these things can be true. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock or refuge to which I can always go. I can't be set upon, right? That makes God different than government, right? Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked. There's only God who will solve humanity's frailties, humanity's strife, humanity's fights with them. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, and the grasp of those evil. Amen.